we all be in. I've got a folder that I have kept since before I was ever elected to Congress, and in it I put articles that really make me think, uh, that kind of challenge me to, to look at the broader, deeper picture of things. As I was looking through it the other day, I discovered that there are more articles in that folder by David Brooks than by everybody else combined. Uh, one of them talks about the economic transformations underway. One of them talks about the five gigantic problems the federal government's got to deal with. One talks about the more demanding cognitive age that, that, that we're, we're in. Some of my favorites are about leadership. One not long ago called the Humble Hound uh, really struck a chord with me. There was another one uh, a few years back where he wrote, once conservatives admired Churchill and Lincoln above all, men from wildly different backgrounds who prepared for leadership through constant reading, historical understanding, and sophisticated thinking. Now those attributes bow down before the common touch. When I told my wife I got the chance to introduce David Brooks, she said, well, go tell him that you bring me home David Brooks articles the way other men bring home flowers. And it's really kind of true. Uh, the rest of the truth is she prefers them. <laughs> so I'm okay. Educated at the University of Chicago, as y'all can tell, he's worked at the Washington Times, Wall Street Journal, Weekly Standard, among others. Now as a columnist for the New York Times and a commentator on the PBS News News Hour. Uh, in my opinion, he's the most influential columnist of our day. And one of the ways you can tell that is by the barnyard rule of influence. If somebody's squealing, you know that somebody, some change is happening that threatens somebody. And there's been a little squealing about some of the things that David has written recently, and I think that ought to be a comfort to him, uh, to, to us and, and to him, that he is making, making a difference. Uh, three years ago, David gave the commencement speech at Wake Forest University just before my son was entering as a freshman. So, as, as you can tell, what I do is make copies, underline things, and take them home. Uh, to try to hope that some of, of that message sinks in on him. Uh, one part of what he said in that speech was uh, that you know that uncertainty you feel today, it never goes away. The question is, how do you make uncertainty your friend? Which seems to me to apply to, to all of us in the room. But, but part of the rest of it was this. Over the years, we all pick up good advice. Spend a year abroad. It's bound to change your life. Think hard about who you marry. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. Devote yourself to your kids. Nothing else is guaranteed to make you happy. The only thing I'd add is create a posse of dead people. Create an entourage of heroes. Put their pictures on your wall and keep them in your mind. They'll remind you of your place in the hidden river of wisdom. They'll serve as models. They'll give you an honest perspective of how you're doing. They'll remind you that blessings don't come from you, but from those who came before you. Well, he's not dead, so I don't have him on the wall yet with Churchill and, and Lincoln. But David Brooks contributes mightily to our river of wisdom. He gives us perspective on how we are doing, and his ideas and insights bless us and our nation. We're fortunate to have you today, David Brooks. Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs>
members of the house here and some former members, and I know you didn't come to hear me speak, you came to hear yourselves speak. <laughs> Already alienating. <laughs> and I'll also uh, forego my normal stump speech because in that speech I mostly talk about Deborah Price, so it's going to be embarrassing. Uh, um, I'm just going to step back uh, for a few minutes, then we can have a, a wider conversation to talk about general philosophy. Uh, you know, I walked in here and I thought we were meeting in the Eisenhower room downstairs, so I opened the door and walked in and there was Sarah Canner and the Young Guns and dozens of members and lots of people, and I thought, Eric Canner at the Rippon Society, my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> but it, unfortunately, he's not quite there yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, I grew up in a home uh, like many of you. Uh, I was in Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Uh, my grandparents served my parents hash brownies on their wedding reception. Uh, somewhat left-wing household. It, it wasn't like yours. Uh, it was a left-wing household in Greenwich Village in the 60s. When I, when I was five, my parents took me to a B-in where hippies would go just to be. Uh, and one of the things they did as part of their being uh, was they set a garbage can on fire and they threw their wallets into it. Uh, and to demonstrate their liberation from money and material things. And I was five, and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can. So I ran up and grabbed it and ran away. Uh, and that was my first step over to the right. <laughs> but it actually took a while to take. Uh, in high school, I had a poster on my wall, a Hubert Humphrey campaign poster. And it said, some talk change, others cause it because at a young age, I knew I wanted to be the sort of person who just talked change. Uh, but I, I was a fervent Democrat. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about what I think of as a, uh, an ancient Republican tradition uh, that I consider myself a part of, uh, which is sometimes different from the Republican tradition that you see in the country today. And I didn't become a conservative uh, out of reading. I came from it as a reporter. I was uh, a reporter in Chicago. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And I covered places like Cabrini Green, which are projects in, in Chicago. And what had happened was you had these horrible tenement slums, really. And planners, out of the best of motives, took these slums, wiped them out, and put up these nice new housing projects, which they thought would solve and make people's lives better. Uh, and when they tore down the old tenements, they, tore, they made people's lives materially better but emotionally worse. Because in those old neighborhoods, there were social networks and filaments that really were supporting lives. And they tore all that away because they just couldn't see it from their vantage point. They couldn't filter it in to a bureaucratic reform. And so materially, things were better, emotionally worse. And within a few years, Cabrini Green was basically uninhabitable. They were horrible places. Marriage had basically disappeared in these neighborhoods. And uh, it was good intentions gone wrong because the government planners had not seen what was most important, which was emotion and social connection. Then I started covering the Nation at Risk Report, 1983, and I've covered education reform ever since. And we've spent trillions of dollars, and high school graduation rates are essentially where they were. This country became the richest country on earth because we basically had a 37-year advantage on every other nation throughout the 19th century as we increased our education level. Over the past 30 years since the nation worked at risk, we've essentially squandered that advantage, and we're now back with all the other countries. College completion has been essentially flat. 
And we've done it because we've uh, reorganized schools, small schools, big schools, vouchers, charters. But because of the way government inherently is, we have trouble dealing with the core secret of, of education, which is the relationship between an individual parent or an individual teacher and an individual student, and a parent and a, and a teacher. It's that emotional connection. If you go to a, a committee hearing and use the word love around here, uh, they look at you like you're Oprah. Uh, but the fact is, people learn from people they love. 